to uh, Revelation again this week and we're going to be skipping actually over two chapters uh, which is a bit of a shame because they are interesting chapters and they're definitely worthy of, uh, of digging into to be honest but time as it is and we're getting close to Christmas perhaps like me you're, <laughs> you're a bit surprised that this year has gone so quickly considering the kind of year it's been but we're going to skip over chapters 10 and 11 Uh, Today we're going to get to chapter 12 Chapter 10 though, just a quick note on that I've been really fascinated by reading about it Just the the chapter about the mighty angel and the small scroll And the consensus that I can get from my reading is that it speaks of of the gospel It speaks uh, of the small scroll being just like the gospel How when John is handed the scroll and he eats it The angel says, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And then what does the angel say? The angel tells John to go and prophesy again about many people's nations, languages and kings. So so it's like a little interlude there. There are many little interludes in the book of Revelation. That's one of them. And uh, we could also say that what we're going to look at today is an interlude uh, in some regards as well. Chapter 11 is that famous chapter about the two witnesses. And it's one of the ones that perhaps if you, if you focus your thinking in Revelation uh, as a futurist on, on an end time fulfillment, the two witnesses often figure quite prominently in that. Now, this could very well be two literal people in the future. It could very well be two people who are empowered by God at the end of time to declare and proclaim on the streets the gospel of Christ. Um, I did read, though, an interesting perspective on chapter 11 and the two witnesses, that actually that it, that it's a picture of the two faithful churches in Revelation. There are seven churches mentioned, and two of them are noted as being faithful. And so some writers propose that these two witnesses are actually just describing the two faithful churches. Uh, Now that very well might be the case as well. What we've always got to remember when we open the word of God is, uh, and look at a prophetic dynamic, is that it can have more than one uh, fulfilment. It can have a current fulfilment and a future fulfilment. And it might be that it refers to both the two churches and perhaps to two individuals at the end of time. The title for this morning, The Battle of the Ages or The Battle of All Ages. When I hear that, I, I pictured in my mind uh, boxing. Now, I've never been into boxing personally, but there's something about boxing that does perfectly encapsulate the, the battle that can occur between, between two powerful forces. And, and boxing, uh, for some reason, I, I don't see myself, but, but it generates incredible excitement and anticipation among those who are tuned in to what is unfolding. As a child, I remember only one boxing match. It was between 
two titans of the ring between Frank Bruno and Mike Tyson. And it was in 1989, so I would have been about um, maybe 10 years old uh, when it was uh, unfolding. Now, I had no interest in boxing, but I remember vividly the way that this battle dominated the headlines at the time. Perhaps, like me, though, you have interest in other sports, which provide a similar, but maybe not to the same degree, a similar kind of head-to-head battle. For me, it would be when Scotland are playing England at football. Now, of course, we, we love our English brothers and sisters. Amen. But, but for 90 minutes when the ball's in play, there is this, uh, this dynamic that unfolds between Scottish and English fans as they watch their nations fight it out. And it is human nature to be drawn to, to battles between two competing forces. With this Frank Bruno and Mike Tyson battle, I remember one other detail. It's like the outcome was never really in question. Mike Tyson at the time was an unstoppable force, and I don't think anyone really doubted that the victory was going to be his. Now, how long it might take, that was the unknown element. I think uh, it only lasted, I think, three rounds from from what I read. But, But... Who was going to win was never in doubt. How long it might take, that was the unknown element. But who was going to win? There seemed to be a real sense of confidence that Mike Tyson was going to win. Today's focus brings us to what I would call the battle of all ages. That is, the battle of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. Or or it could be named the battle of the ages because it would draw on specific moments within this bigger battle. For example, between Jesus and Satan, or Satan and the church. Before we get to opening Revelation chapter 12, though, let's, if you've got a Bible, uh, feel free to turn to the book of Ephesians. Because this is going to be the underpinning uh, for for this um, overarching reality of the scriptures. So Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 to 13. Paul writes... Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armour of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armour of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. This is the overarching reality of all scripture. That what we see with our natural eyes isn't all that is going on. And, and that contrasts or jars against our contemporary culture. We're living in a time of naturalism. Where the philosophy of the day that is in our culture. And, and that is being communicated in our schools is that there is nothing beyond or behind that which can be seen, that can be t- which can be touched or measured. That would be what we would call a natural worldview. And uh, of course, for us that, that uh, believe in Jesus Christ and we trust the word of God, we would propose that we actually live not just in a natural reality, but also in a supernatural reality. That to be a follower of Christ is to have a supernatural worldview. That the natural reality which we can see and touch is actually a product of supernatural cause, as such is open to supernatural influence. 
the, the people we see, the, the nature around us, the world, the galaxies, the universe is all open to supernatural influence because it was created and is sustained by a being beyond the natural realm. Now that would sound perhaps far-fetched today to many people. But in order to believe what we believe, we need to see the world through the lens of a supernatural world view. Paul touches on different dynamics here and we hear phrases like the principalities and powers. Um, depending on your translation, uh, it might say rulers, uh, authorities, cosmic powers, uh, spiritual forces in the heavens. But that has been the, the truth since the point of creation. That everything that we see is, is under the influence of supernatural power. Whether that be good or bad, it's the product of uh, what we don't see, that is, those unseen powers. Now that isn't to deny that we live in a natural, tangible world, but more to acknowledge that there's also an intangible behind it which impacts every aspect of creation. And that really is the, the heartbeat of Revelation 12. It is, as we've mentioned, uh, another interlude in some regards as to what we've been reading. We've had the seals broken and the horses released. We've had the trumpets blasted and the judgments poured out. And now, in a sense, we change pace. It's like we go to a big picture supernatural reality of a battle between forces of good and evil. Now, if, if last week's trumpet judgments would have made an exciting movie, today's reading would do likewise and more. So let's look at this. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to read the whole chapter. So, uh, so deep breath, <laughs> deep breath. It says in verse 1, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labour and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them down to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come, because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to a male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time. From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Here we have a battle played out not just in heaven but also on earth. And if we know our Bibles, uh, we'll recognise that this has been the case ever since the beginning of time. And if we know our history, we'll recognise that it's played out across all cultures and across all generations for as long as the records have been kept. Some questions, well, perhaps many questions are raised as we read this chapter. But some stand out to me um, as, as we look at this today. Why is this battle raging on? Why is it raging on? How did it start? Who is involved? Am I involved? What is my part in it? And, and how will it end? Now, these are key questions that every Christian who reads the Bible might ask. And, and Revelation 12, I would propose, answers these questions. But of course, because it's in a, an apocalyptic style, we have to read it carefully within its own context, within its own time period to understand what John is writing here. We've got, we've got several characters introduced. We've got a dragon, a woman, a child, an angel and, and angels, a battle in heaven and on earth. You can see why people even beyond the church have been either drawn to this out of curiosity or or perhaps have opted to hold all this at arm's length. Now these key characters perhaps are the most easiest to identify thus far in, in our journey through Revelation. We've got first and foremost we've got the woman. Now it's a singular title, an identifier that, that I would propose uh, is is identifying a multitude. Much of what I've read points to the, the proposal that this is um, an allusion to the faithful people of God prior to the birth of Christ. There's imagery here of a sun, moon and the crown of 12 stars. And, and that isn't totally clear. There's a lot of debate on what that might mean. Uh, if we look at the 12 stars, for example, the 12 stars could hint towards the 12 tribes of Israel, which would, again, support this idea that this is the this woman is the faithful of God prior to the birth of Christ. In the New Testament and Revelation, it is uh, replete with imagery of God's faithful wearing crowns as a reward. And also about God's people um, about to give birth. A number of occasions in the Old Testament, especially we find it in Isaiah, for example, where God's people are likened to a woman about to give birth. 
Now, I've been very privileged to witness the birth of both my children, and uh, the worst that I got from that was I was very tired, and I had really sore feet and sore calf muscles for, from standing up for so long. Uh, that you look at what your your spouse has to go through as they're giving birth, and you have nothing but admiration and respect for what they go through. It's beyond incredible. So the picture of a woman giving birth um, is, is, is an Old Testament picture for uh, the people of God who are going through a time of agony uh, before a time of deliverance. The time of agony might refer, for example, to uh, exile or to oppression. And the Old Testament would be, would be very um, replete with examples of, of, of that very notion that that a time of agony relates to a time of exile and oppression before deliverance comes. The second character we meet is this dragon. Now you think, well, why is a dragon showing up in this text? Why is John not just writing things plainly so that we can read them and understand them? Well, during John's day, and, and a few centuries before that, and, and perhaps a century after, the archetypal image of chaos was often a dragon. It was one of the main protagonists in mythology during John's day. Some propose that one of the main reasons John frames this whole battle between the person and the dragon is because contemporary literature of the first century was was very much framed around this kind of narrative. Greek mythology and literature from 3 BC to roughly 2 AD was very like what we've just read from Revelation chapter 12. And the Romans caught on to this too. It's actually recorded that Domitian used this kind of literature as propaganda to portray him as the great victor over the chaos monster. The chaos monster. What a great name. Just to clarify, that is not the cookie monster's evil cousin. Just want to make that very clear. So Domitian is, it portrays himself, uh, the emperor, as the great victor over the chaos monster. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is John is drawing, potentially drawing on the literature style of the day to convey a biblical, scriptural point. It's also important for us to remember that Revelation is written, once again, let's recap on this, it's written to seven actual historical churches living under the rule of either Domitian or Nero. Uh, People would tend to say it was under Domitian, that's the majority view from what I've read. But either way, they were both... Uh, cult emperors who demanded, in a sense, demanded worship. So it it makes sense for John to use contemporary narratives to speak directly to the people. Now granted for us to read this today, uh, it seems a bit disconnected from our reality, but for readers and hearers in the first century, they would have been very at home with this kind of writing. We also know that this dragon uh, is also... Uh, painted as uh, Leviathan in the scripture as well. Greek copies of the Psalms 
um, Leviathan is described as this, as such, as the creature coming out of the deep waters, out of the abyss. And if we think back to last week, when we're talking about what comes out of the abyss, these uh, great swarms of locusts with their king, Abaddon and Apollyon, they came out of the, of the abyss. And also the word dragon here is used in Psalm 91 to describe the serpent that God tramples on. It's also the same name that's given to the king of Babylon in Jeremiah 51 and the pharaoh of Egypt in Ezekiel 29. So you can begin to see how everything ties together in this text, that this term dragon relates, and that is really steeped in scriptural reference from the Old Testament. The dragon with its seven heads and ten crowns, some translations might say diadems. Uh, the, the proposal is that this represents uh, false power, false perfection. And it takes us back, if, for those of you that, that have read Daniel, takes us back to Daniel's depiction of the great empires of the earth who are at their hearts under the influence of the supernatural power of God's enemies. If we think back to a few weeks ago when we touched on the first seal being broken, the great empires of the earth ruled by, in essence, antichrist spirits. Antichrist spirits that ruled by the sword. And we say the antichrist in a sense of it being in place of or against Christ or against the kingdom of God. Now this dragon has a mission. Its desire is to devour the child, it tells us in the word. And that's the third character that we're introduced to. Now again, it's very straightforward for us to understand who this is. That the one who has come from the woman. Then again, if we propose that the woman referred to here in chapter 12 is the faithful people of God pre-Christ. That the one who has come from that woman, a son, a male who is going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And if you get a chance, you can even pause uh, this and look at Psalm 2 verses 6 to 9. The male who is going to rule all the nations with an iron rod and who is caught up to God and to his throne. The dragon's desire is to devour this child. And it's a mission which was instituted right back as far as Genesis 3 verse 15 when God declared that one day the offspring of the woman would strike a fatal blow to the enemy. And the dragon's strategy here is really clear. It is kill or be killed. Do everything in his power to either prevent the child being born or destroy him once he arrives. Now again, if we know our Bibles and we know our biblical history, we know this has been the plan of the enemy throughout all of the history of the Jewish people. From Pharaoh to Haman to King Herod to the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and ultimately his crucifixion. And this supernatural battle has been played out between supernatural beings uh, on earth for millennia. And whilst the enemy thought that he might succeed, and there are arguments to be made that actually there have been many little victories for him in the natural realm, ultimately he fails to stop God's redemptive plan. And that again is the voice and the heartbeat of Revelation. 
The child is caught up to God and his throne and the woman flees into the desert to a place prepared for her to be nourished by God. Now, if we pause here for a moment, again, we want to remember that this is an apocalyptic text, but also a prophetic text. We know from history that the people of God escaped the city of Jerusalem in AD 66, prior to its fall and the destruction in AD 70. Now, if we look at the the days and the maths here, we know that roughly for three and a half years, which is roughly 1,260 days, they, they, they fled Jerusalem and they found a place of protection away from the destruction of the city and the slaughter of the people. Now, now might John just be referring to a, a, a specific time period? Perhaps even it could be looking back. If this was written in the 90s AD, perhaps John in this moment is referring back to how the people escaped Jerusalem. Possibly John's referring to that. Might also this have an end time implication for the church, protected by God from the ultimate Antichrist, possibly as well. Again, we see here, though, that God is sovereign. Another heartbeat of the book of Revelation. God is sovereign. He's ultimately in control of everything. Even though the battle is raging on down here, God's plans and purposes are fulfilled. As soon as Christ is enthroned in heaven, the battle changes. The dragon that we read of in verse 9, and again this just defines for us who the, the dragon is, the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. This dragon is thrown out of heaven. He's thrown out of heaven at the command of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Think back to Matthew 28. Who has all authority in heaven and on earth? He's thrown out uh, at the command of Christ, but at the hand of Michael and the army of God's angels. What an incredible picture that is, isn't it? Now, I believe in the literal reality, a literal understanding of of the battle between uh, angels. I, I, I do believe that that is something that is tangible in the spiritual realm. And it uh, is unfolding here with the battle between this great dragon and Michael. And there's an army of angels on both sides. Now the dragon is thrown down to the earth and he then goes on to persecute the woman. That is the faithful of God and the rest of her offspring, the church. So this idea of persecution, we know that that beyond 70 AD, when the when the Jerusalem was was destroyed and the people of God were dispersed further. We know that persecution in the subsequent few centuries happened. It had periods of intensity. It wasn't a consistent persecution. But there were periods of extreme intensity against the people of God. Many lost their lives as martyrs during that period before things settled down in the early 4th century. And so here we have this picture of perhaps the people leaving the the city of Jerusalem three and a half years before it is destroyed. And then you have this picture of them being persecuted, perhaps for subsequent centuries. And that's where we have this phrase that we've read here, this scripture. 
It says he was furious, the dragon, with the woman and went off to wage war against her and uh, the rest of her offspring. And who are they? Well, they are the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Now, this chapter is the ultimate depiction of the battle of all ages. It highlights specific fights within this battle, the desire to destroy the Jewish people before Christ, to destroy Christ himself and to destroy the church of Jesus Christ before his return. And we have to remember, when we look at this chapter, that this is part of the, the full book. We know the battle is won. The battle of, uh, of, of all ages is won. God has the victory. But that doesn't stop Paul from warning the Corinthian church in chapter 2, verse 11, not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Your translation might have devices. The battle of all ages is won, but that doesn't stop Paul from warning the Ephesians of the need to put on the whole armour of God and to stand our ground against this unseen but absolute reality of the rulers and authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The battle's won, but Paul urges the people to be mindful. How might we live out that reality then? Well, on a personal level, uh, um, a study of the armour of God would never go amiss. The armour of God is an incredible portion of, uh, as we touched on, Ephesians 6. And it's central to how we are able to stand in this day. But as well as that, my encouragement would be for us to actively seek to appreciate the supernatural influence behind what we see in our natural reality. Now that isn't to say that we begin to look for the, the demon behind every bush. You know, that, that, that is unproductive, unhelpful and puts us in the wrong place. We're not standing in a place of victory then. That, that is us becoming perhaps overly concerned with this dynamic. But, but we have to appreciate the supernatural influence behind what we see in our natural reality. That God is at work by his supernatural power in our natural reality. And we need to seek out where he's at work and partner with him in the power of his spirit at work within us and amongst us. Likewise, we have to be mindful of the power at work in our reality, which is antichrist in nature. When we hear that word antichrist, perhaps, you get a, a, a bit of a chill down your back. I want to just remind us how to define that. That is anything that, that is in place of or puts itself against or opposing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That which stands against the word of God and the example of Christ. Now, when we look at our culture, when we look at our political systems, when we look even at our communities and our perhaps our neighbourhoods, perhaps even our wider friendship circles beyond the church, I want to just encourage us to remember that, that when things are going wrong, when things seem out of place, I want us to remember that it's very possible that there is a supernatural dynamic going on behind what we see in the natural. Why is that important? Well, it helps us to look at people with more grace 
love and desire for them to be free, to be lifted out of darkness and into God's glorious light. If we see things unravelling in people's circumstance, then rather than looking at them and thinking that they are the sole and absolute reason for their challenge, perhaps in our grace and by God's grace we can see that actually perhaps there's a wrestle going on behind the scenes for that soul, for that person and therefore we can love the person and pray and, and lift them by the power of God out of their reality and into his. That also helps us when we look at our political dynamic and it reminds us that every single person is being influenced in one way or another. That they're either being influenced by God's kingdom or by the kingdom of the world. And therefore, our first point of call, I believe, for our political leaders and even for those of other countries, is to be praying for them. I've noticed, perhaps never more than, than, than now, people have such an opinion about individuals like Donald Trump, the President of the United States. And whilst we would, we would be able to note faults and flaws in people's character, what I would encourage us to do is to say that God loves that man. God loves that man and longs for that man to come to know him in an intimate and deep way. God longs for transformation of that man. And therefore, we should be longing for that too. Praying. Praying for all people. Let's bring this closer to home, to our own political sphere. There is a supernatural influence going on behind the scenes in our own government. Whether it be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. And so, whilst we might again be able to point and identify flaws, I believe God is inviting us to step out of that and to say, God loves these people. He longs for them to come to a knowledge of Christ. He longs for them to be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And therefore, let's pray for them. Let's pray that they would come to a place of beautiful, glorious submission to God's way. Again, as we've said before, this is not an exhaustive look at Revelation. I'm just taking portions and trying to unpack it and, and give us more confidence to open this text and read it again. And you might find that actually what I've shared this morning, you might think that Stuart, you've missed bits out. You've missed important bits out. You haven't touched on the details that I was hoping you would touch on. And yeah, the thing about Revelation is that even to look at one chapter, we would, we could take several weeks really uh, to look at it in its fullness. And so I do pray that this is encouraging you to dig into it yourself. You know, it's, it's sermons are never enough. 
because there's always more. <laughs> personal study of the Word of God, personal um, digging in and, and wrestling has to happen. Uh, and, and there are so many great resources out there. Just to encourage you, the people that I often go to, for example, Dr. Bob Utley, lots of his material on YouTube. He's also got a fantastic online Bible commentary called freebiblecommentary.org. I believe it's .org. There's lots of great resources which could help us to dig into this in our own time. And so I do encourage you to do that. But for now, I hope this has been an encouragement for you and, uh, and a blessing, as, as it says at the start of the book, that we're blessed are those that read and hear the words of this text. So I do hope it's been a blessing to hear it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the chance to open your word and just read it freely. And I'm so conscious, God, that as we approach these kinds of texts, that there is so much in here that perhaps we're just speculating. We're making educated guesses. Uh, and, and so, God, I just want to thank you that your Holy Spirit is involved, that it's not just the intellect of people, but it is the Spirit of God that leads us to understanding. So, Father, help us. Help us to understand what we've heard. As we go back and look at it again, help us to fully understand what it is that you want us to take from it. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.